Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Joyce Vance. This has been a week full of legal developments for us to discuss today. So we'll talk in depth about two of the biggest legal stories. First, no surprises, we'll take a look at the indictment of the Trump Organization and Trump Organization's CFO, Alan Weisselberg. Then, and and we'll see if my sisters agree with my assessment here, that this development will have even more impact on our lives. The Supreme Court issued its decision in Brnovich versus DNC. We'll talk about what that case means for the future of voting rights in America. And as always, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. Well, um, big, big week, y'all. And, and with all the focus on the Supreme Court, something that didn't happen uh, was we didn't hear any announcement from Justice Breyer on the last day of the term that he would be resigning, that he would be stepping down from the Supreme Court. Were you surprised by that? I wasn't. And I've known uh, Justice Breyer since his days in the Watergate prosecution office. Um, he is a man of great principle, and he truly believes that the court cannot be politicized and that his retirement would be an act of political um, wrongdoing on his part. So I don't think he's going to do it. Yeah, you know, Joyce, one of the real tea leaves that you can read there is whether he's hired law clerks for the upcoming term, right? Because no one would, you would hope, uh, hire law clerks if they intended to retire. And he has. He's hired law clerks for the term that starts in October. So Four of them, uh, yes. that, sign, that, that sign indicates that he's staying. That's a pretty good sign. Yes. Although I I will say that other uh, Justice Kennedy, I believe, had hired clerks as well before he announced his retirement. So it's not surefire uh, um, thing, but that is true. He that news came through on the last day uh, for Breyer that he hired his clerks. It came through on Friday, whereas Kennedy had hired his earlier. So maybe that's a little bit of a difference. But um, yeah, I'm not surprised today. If if you had asked him on January 20th at the beginning of this new administration whether Breyer would retire, I would say probably just because, yes, he is very principled. He does not believe that the Supreme Court should be politicized, but he's also smart enough to know the political realities that involve the Supreme Court. I mean, he used to be on the Senate uh, Senate Judiciary Committee uh, as counsel under Ted Kennedy. He, he's, no, he's no slouch, and he understands what the stakes are, and he understands what this very tenuous 50-person majority that the Democrats have. Uh, but at the same time, he clearly likes his job. He's issued some of the most important cases, uh, opinions this term, um, and he's probably believes he has something to offer. And so that's the the explanation that I can give. I hope he knows what he's doing. I Full disclosure, I think I said this before on this podcast, I wrote a column uh, during that first week of the administration saying, okay, great. Now Breyer's been inaugurated. Uh, I mean, now Joe Biden's been inaugurated. Uh, Stephen Breyer can retire now. So I think that that would be good given what has already been done to the Supreme Court and the tactics of Mitch McConnell that um, Stephen Breyer taking one for the Democratic team would be more than reasonable and would not hurt the reputation of the court. But um, he didn't ask me. So uh, here we are. Yeah, well, you know what's going to happen, right? He's going to stick around for one more year, and then Mitch McConnell's going to say it's too late. We're too close to midterms, and then we're too close to new president. Well, he's and already so, said that. Um, he already said he's not going to yeah. do anything in 2023. Yeah, well, of course, that, that requires a, a switch in um, 
the who controls the Senate, but that you know that's pretty foreseeable, right? That could happen quite easily. I you know I I, I agree with the sentiment that the court should not be politicized, and we don't want it to be seen as this political animal because we want it to be legitimate to all Americans. But um, you know, Kennedy was happy to leave. <laughs> Uh, the Repu- Republican appointed to clear the way for Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and and so um, it seems that one party plays this game pretty well and the other party stands on principle and um, has paid the price for it, I think. And just, I mean, just to point out, right after Obama was, not, you know, not the minute, but the year Obama was elected, David Souter was like, all right, I'm out. And, you know, uh, people do this. People do pay attention to what happened, what the political atmosphere is before they make this determination. So this is not unusual. The notion that the court hasn't been politicized by the way Senator McConnell has handled confirmations or not confirmations uh, is really troubling moving forward on this. So we'll have to watch this with interest. Well, let's jump right in. Barb, I think you're going to lead our conversation about the Trump Corporation and Alan Weisselberg indictments. Let's go. Yeah, so big news this week when we saw the Trump Organization and its chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, uh, indicted by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in partnership with the Attorney General of New York. It's a 15-count indictment. And, you know, maybe we can post this on our webpage, because I think it's easy to dismiss this as um, not much of anything, but it's a really impressive indictment. It's um, It goes on for about 15 pages, and it alleges a scheme to evade taxes. It includes grand larceny, filing false documents, and related charges. And the gist is that the Trump Organization has been compensating its employees off the books for 16 years providing benefits like cars and apartments and bonuses, home improvements like flat screen TVs for Alan Weisselberg, uh, a very expensive school tuition without reporting any of it as income. And so in in this way, the employees didn't have to pay taxes on these things because they weren't reported as income. The Trump Organization would pay these things directly uh, without passing through the employee. And the Trump Organization could reduce its payroll tax bill. Uh, Alan Weisselberg himself is charged with receiving $1.7 million in untaxed benefits. Uh, Trump himself is not named, but Attorney General Letitia James in New York uh, says that the investigation is ongoing, so more charges are possible, additional crimes or additional defendants. Um, and, you know, one thing that this strikes me as, I, I heard his lawyers talk about this is not a big deal, everybody does this. Well, I'll tell you what, I think it's a big deal. It's uh, it's the way rich people steal money. You know, some people uh, use guns and stand on a street corner to steal money, and this is maybe more sophisticated means, um, and you don't get your hands dirty and you're not out on the streets, but it is nothing more than stealing money. And that's why one of the lead charges here is grand larceny, one of the charges in the case. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts, Jill. You've seen big tax cases over the years. I mean, do you think that this is a big deal, or is this small potatoes that's not likely to result in prison for anybody? I don't think it's small potatoes. It isn't the blockbuster that people were hoping for and waiting for and that seemed to be coming based on all of the publicity from both the Attorney General of New York on the civil side, who then joined in the criminal with Cy Vance, um, and with the prolonged litigation over getting Donald Trump's tax returns. 
and the fact that he's only mentioned as the former CEO of the company, uh, not as a co-conspirator. Um, but I still think it's a big deal. It, it is uh, a case where there is a co-conspirator, more than one. There's a co-conspirator number one mentioned, who, according to news reports, is not the co-conspirator number one that was mentioned in the Michael Cohn case. Uh, but there is another cooperating co-conspirator who's mentioned. And the fact that it is a 16-year scheme and conspiracy makes it much more than just someone made a mistake on the tax returns. This was a deliberate, thoughtful thing. It could lead to a lot of things beyond the criminal indictment. So it could lead to a little RICO uh, indictment in New York, but it also could lead to huge tax liability for the company and also to companies, uh, banks, for example, refusing to lend to the company and in many big loans, the documents say if the company is indicted, the loan is callable immediately. That means that there could be hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, not thousands, hundreds of millions of dollars in loans that could be called, forcing the Trump organization into total bankruptcy. And I don't think we're paying enough attention to that. They could also lose, of course, their liquor licenses and casino licenses because of being indicted, and that would that would end their business. So, um, and if they can't serve liquor at the golf courses, people aren't going to play golf there. And so, I think it could be that it also could be the harbinger of many other indictments to come, both from Vance and from uh, Attorney General James. But also, you know, federal tax audit is still lingering there. Campaign violations, the Stormy Daniels tax payment that, uh, after all, Michael Cohn went to jail and said he did it at the direction of Donald Trump. And we still haven't heard from that. The DA in Westchester maybe is looking at one of his properties there that had a, a conservation easement that's been challenged. So I think the brand is going to suffer, and it could be financial disaster. And that makes it a big deal in addition to the fact that the criminal indictment has a 15-year maximum penalty on grand larceny. Yep. That's a long time to spend in let, jail. Let me ask Kim about that concept. You know, we don't know whether Donald Trump himself will or won't be charged with a crime. But is this just the indictment of his organization um, enough to damage him financially? You know, he's all about marketing his name. The Trump brand is on everything, right? The the real estate, the properties, the wine, uh, all of those things um, use, use the name Trump, you know, on the one hand, uh, it seems that no one loves money or his own name as as much as Trump, and, and this indictment threatens both. But on the other hand, Trump has also um, raised a lot of money off of his grievances, real or imagined, to fire up his base, and even using uh, these kinds of grievances as a fundraiser. What, what do you think, Kim? Will he be damaged uh, personally by this, or is this like shooting someone on Fifth Avenue and nobody cares? Yeah, I, I think this is a yes and no answer to this. On the one hand, yes, this lawsuit hits Donald Trump 
where it hurts. He's the only president or even presidential nominee for a party who chose not to divest his business interests uh, once he became uh, the nominee for the party and set that aside. He it, That was shocking at the time, uh, but it's also because he cares very much about the Trump organization. He cares very much about his brand and this idea that now the entire organization uh, is being called a criminal enterprise, essentially, at least when it comes to the this tax scheme, this tax avoidance scheme, certainly hits him where it hurts. And if any of the potential consequences that Jill just laid out befalls him, that's going to cost him money and he is going to hate that. Um, on the other hand, without an actual indictment of the person, of, of Donald Trump, which I'd wasn't sure might be coming. And it's certainly the sort of thing that if you, if uh, um, Letitia James and Cy Vance didn't have the goods on, they could not fire on. So the people who are waiting for that, I know there are some listeners that thought, okay, well, we thought you can't, you can't indict a president while he's in office. Now he's out of office. Where's the indictment? You know, I know, I know that there are listeners that are wondering that. Um, first of all, these are state charges. So th- it, it's not clear whether that was prevented at all. Anyway, this we're, a DOJ document prevents federal charges from being brought um, to against the president. But that's another matter. That being said, Donald Trump has made an art out of taking grievance, as you said, Barb, taking this idea that he is under attack, that the Democrats are after him, and turning that into a political juggernaut. So am I afraid that because there is no indictment against him, because his attorney sort of forecasted that there's not going to be much to see here, and what actually transpired can probably be messaged as much ado about nothing. I agree with Jill that it's not much ado about nothing, but it can be messaged that way, that this will only further galvanize his supporters in this idea that this is a political witch hunt, that this is the same. You saw Don Jr. today saying that this is the same thing that happened to Navalny in Russia. Like, first of all, nobody poisoned (laughs) anybody in the United States. Um, He also didn't, couldn't say Navalny's name right. But this is, but this is the narrative that's going through in Trump land. And I fear that. I think that that could be a dangerous thing. Um, And I hope at the very least there are some convictions out of this to at least this, just like with the Mueller investigation, how we had those convictions and we had, um, uh, the outcome there that didn't stop it from being dismissed as political, that that something comes out of this, because I think that it can do some political harm. Yeah, so we do have one individual who's been charged in addition to the organization. That's Alan Weisselberg, who's the chief financial officer. Um, d- does the prosecution, the prosecutors here, um, Joyce, let me ask you, um, do they need Weisselberg to flip, to cooperate to be able to charge others because it looks like he hasn't done that yet. You know, there's a lot of rumor that they were pressuring him to try to get him to cooperate. But these charges, you know, they really appear to have thrown the book at him, makes it appear that he's not on their team, that he has not agreed to cooperate. Do you think that they need him to cooperate to be able to charge others, including Donald Trump? And and how likely do you think it is that he will cooperate? So I think that's sort of the million dollar question here, right? I mean, that's that's the most important case here because Weisselberg seems like he really holds the keys to the castle. 
Uh, you definitely want to have the chief financial officer, the CFO, cooperating in a case like this if you're the prosecutors. They are always a, a key piece. And there's something interesting about Trump Org here. I think the last time that I did a, a case that involved a corporation, they had had six CEOs over, or rather six CFOs over the period of about 12 years that we were looking at. And that was really great because you could bring each CFO in, present your case, flip them, and you had this whole group of, of witnesses against the CEO. But here there's only Weisselberg, who's been at Trump's side for 50 years, and their, their lives are intertwined, their families are intertwined. Clearly that, that made it much more difficult here for prosecutors to flip him. So we don't know for certain whether they might be able to make a case without him. I think it's tough to see a clear path forward, or at least they don't have that evidence right now. And we know that because if there had been a clear path, they would have charged other people along with Weisselberg. The fact that they didn't says that they don't think that they can right now. So whether he might cooperate in the future, I think is a question we maybe have some insight into. He is clearly held firm so far. And he is unique because of his long-term allegiance to Trump. Sometimes for some defendants, it, it takes the feel of handcuffs on their wrists to make the situation seem real. But Weisselberg's not looking at a whole lot of time here, probably something in low single digits. And he may have decided that for the security of his family's financial future, he can go ahead and take that um, burden on. I wonder about whether there's similarity to Michael Cohen's situation. Remember Michael Cohen, I'll take a bullet for Donald Trump. Oh no, wait, let me cooperate and, and say everything that I know, Michael Cohen. And what happened to him was he was faced with mounting legal costs and a lot of financial pressure. Interesting question whether there might be that same kind of pressure at some point on Weisselberg, who will have to pay not just his legal fees, but who has a really huge big back taxes bill um, that he's going to get hit with at some point in time. And, and that raises an interesting sort of area, right? Is it possible that the feds will jump into this case? Could there be a federal tax prosecution? We don't know. Um, but although federal tax evasion charges usually cap at about five years, there's a whole range of sort of interesting sort of um, fraud charges that the feds could bring if they chose to come in on this case. I, I can't really assess whether that's a realistic possibility or not. One suspects the, the federal prosecutors don't even have Trump's taxes or the corporation's taxes, because I don't imagine that Bill Barr would have ever countenanced that, and he could have kept that from happening. Yeah, so, I have a, a couple questions about that. Number one, do you think that the um, the prosecution could use this strategy to get information out of Alan Weisselberg? If he's unwilling to cooperate, try him, convict him, or perhaps he'd be acquitted, whatever it is. After the case is over, he no longer has a Fifth Amendment right. Put him in the grand jury and compel him to testify at that point. You see that happening? Yeah, That's kind I of mean, a mob, it's a really mob interesting. It's an interesting question. One issue is whether this um, prosecution 
would eradicate his Fifth Amendment privilege? Could he still maintain that he theoretically had Fifth Amendment privileges in other cases that could be brought down the road? Mm-hmm. And, and then yeah, against the interest- federal charges, perhaps, yeah. Right, or, or other state charges, right? I mean, mm-hmm. maybe he would be an essential witness if there was a, or even a defendant if there was a Westchester County prosecution. So that might keep it from happening. And the other thing, Barb, is, I mean, if he's really intent on staying on Team Trump, then he might just decline to prosecute and be willing to take the penalty Mm -hmm. for that. But I think that that's a good strategy for prosecutors to keep in their toolkit. Um, Let me just say one last thing, because this is something that really troubles me a lot. You know, so much of Trump's public conduct leads to the inference that he's guilty of everything that Weisselberg and the corporation are charged with. He bragged in in the debate with Hillary that he was too smart to pay taxes, right? Sure, I didn't pay taxes. It's because I'm such a smart guy. Everything that he does really leads you to believe that he might be responsible. But in court, inference is not enough. Prosecutors have to have admissible evidence that'll prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I suspect that's why we haven't seen an indictment that goes further than Weisselberg at this point. Well, Barb, I do want to take a slightly different position than Joyce in answer to your first question, which is, do the prosecutors need Weisselberg to make this case? And certainly he would be useful and helpful. I don't think he's essential. Number one, the documents are pretty clear, I think, and can be used and explained very compellingly to a jury. Second of all, there's the controller of the company who seems to maybe have been cooperating. There's the possibility that someone else like Calamari would turn on him or that Rona Graff, his assistant, or Michael Cohn or Jennifer Jennifer Weisselberg, the daughter-in-law, former daughter-in-law of Alan Weisselberg, could be witnesses or the accountants who got the wrong information. And I think that it can be used against both Donald Trump, the organization, and Weisselberg, that Weisselberg and Donald Trump were so close that he was there for so long that he was clearly involved in writing checks to himself and concealing it. Um, And the fact that there's a double set of books is something juries will love. So I'm not sure that he is essential as a witness. Helpful, yes, not essential. Even even for additional individuals, though, I mean, beyond this case, to, to charge Donald Trump or other members of the organization. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jill, I, I agree with you that that's a possibility. But if that's the case, why do you think they charged Weisselberg standalone? Why didn't they put together the full case and bring out one big indictment? That's hard to explain, and it is troubling that they didn't do it all at once. But there may be some reason why they thought that the reality of handcuffs on Weisselberg would lead to his being cooperative, and that if they have to, they'll go yeah, without Yeah, and I, I agree with that, and Jill. I, I think I, that, um, I know I've been hearing some experts say that, oh, well, this is clearly all they have. They, they If they had more, they would have shown it. I, I don't think so. I think sometimes you strategically hold back certain things and you say alan weisselberg we charge you with the tax scheme but you know we're continuing investigation insurance fraud and bank fraud and these other crimes that are going to bring a whole lot more time so um don't don't make us go there we're going to give you another chance or maybe there's someone else that they're courting as a cooperator so i i think it's quite possible that there is still more to come that either they're continuing to investigate or have strategically held back 
Well, I see that we're out of time on this topic. We could talk all day, and I'm sure we'll have many more opportunities to talk about it again. And the one thing I just want to leave out there is that um, uh, a little message to uh, Letitia James and Cy Vance. We're still waiting to hear more about an individual one. I don't know why the federal uh, authorities have not pursued that case, or at least have not pursued that case yet. But that's the one, of course, that relates to the hush money, where DOJ said in in court papers that Michael Cohen was directed and uh, coordinated with individual one in the payment of those hush monies. Michael Cohen went to prison for that. And um, I want to, we also know that individual one won the 2016 election for president. Why has nobody pursued those charges? Uh, We'll leave it there and keep an eye on that one. Hey, Joyce, have you heard about fast-growing trees? I have heard about fast-growing trees, Kim. In fact, I heard about them several years ago. I found them in a Google search when I wanted to get a Meyer lemon tree. And so I ordered this teeny tiny little tree that showed up. And amazingly enough, it pretty quickly became a big tree. You know, we take it outdoors in the summer and we bring it indoors in the winter because it freezes where we live. And right now it's sitting out on the balcony, um, out, out on the second story of our house in full bloom, just full of bloom. So I look forward to making lots of lemon meringue pie come uh, early fall. It's quite the endorsement. Oh, that's great. You just convinced me to go online and I order know. something. You nice. get, I want a get tree. the Meyer lemon trees. How do they make it's it grow so fast? Awesome. What are they what are they feeding them? You know, they just Why have, does it good, grow fast? have good roots and they're well developed. They're probably not um Wow. It's, it's the alive and thrive system, Barb. Didn't you there hear? You go. <laughs> <laughs> Can it make me grow? <laughs> <laughs> does it have any like roses and things like you that? You know, I've always ordered fruit trees from them. I think I've got some of their vines too. I think maybe one of my clematis came from them. Um, but oh, everything's okay. beautiful. Think about it. No more waiting in lines, messy cars, and lackluster selection at a local nursery. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. Think about it. Shade, privacy, fruit trees, or added color in your yard. Every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system, ready to explode and grow. And planting season is here, so join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at FastGrowingTrees.com. The best part, with the 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, it means that your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. Now through July 31st, go to FastGrowingTrees.com slash sisters for 15% off. I'll definitely be doing that. That's 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com slash sisters. Look for the link in our show notes. The Brnovich decision from the Supreme Court, the big voting rights case this week, was 6-3. There was a majority opinion and there was a dissent. And that's how we thought we'd focus our discussion today, starting first with the majority opinion and then moving on to the, the dissent. Jill, go ahead. Brnovich versus DNC was one of the most consequential and eagerly awaited Supreme Court decisions this term. And it was announced on the last day of the term, July 1st. In 2010, the Supreme Court gutted Section 5, the preclearance requirements of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. 
And uh, that was nearly 100 years after the Civil War. Um, and now in this 6-3 ruling, they have further narrowed the impact of the Voting Rights Amendment by cutting down on Section 2 dramatically, limiting the federal government's role in protecting federal elections and upholding two voting restrictions in Arizona, one that bars counting a ballot for statewide and national office if the vote was cast in the wrong precinct, and one barring anyone except family, a caregiver, or a household member from delivering a mail-in ballot for someone else, despite the absence of any proof that fraud impacted such activities, and despite its clear, disparate impact on minority voters. I was particularly struck by the impact on Native American voters on that one and the statistics on that. I told my social media followers to read the dissent first by Justice Kagan because it's brilliant and I believe accurate. But let's start with an analysis of the majority opinion. And I want to start with you, Joyce, because you wrote a terrific piece in the Washington Post about the DOJ suing Georgia for its new voter suppression laws. And in it, you mentioned the possibility before the decision that Brnovich would make it more difficult to challenge these laws. So while the two Arizona laws that have been upheld may not seem so draconian on first look, the court's narrow reading of the Voting Rights Act's language and the test it used to determine the constitutionality of these particular changes to what's known as time, place, and manner of voting may be very draconian. Can you talk about the test the majority applies to determine if a voting law violates the Voting Rights Act or even the 15th Amendment? And then we'll talk later about the dissenters and the test they would use and what the difference is. Sure. So I, I think you framed this just right, because it's interesting to note that the Solicitor General is actually the Deputy Solicitor, Solicitor General. After the Biden administration came into place and, and DOJ was reconfiguring itself. Uh, Ed Needler, who's the deputy solicitor general, wrote the Supreme Court a letter and he said, we've looked at this case and we are not going to change position from the position that the prior administration took that these two Arizona statutes pass muster. We don't challenge that. What we do challenge is the test that should be used to decide when a state law violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And that's the real issue here, right? The only issue that the court's going to resolve that has meaning going forward is what test should courts require plaintiffs who are challenging these kinds of laws that restrict voting to meet in order to establish discrimination because of race, which is what Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act prohibits. So Brnovich is the first time um, that we're seeing Section 2 used in this context with the Supreme Court making a, a big major pronouncement in this area. Typically, Section 2 was used for districting or redistricting cases because Section 5 was in place to deal with new laws. Of course, Section 5 gets gutted by the Supreme Court in its 2013 decision in Shelby County versus Holder. And unfortunately, what happens in Brnovich is that they threw Section 2 on that same, you know, trash pile that they had previously thrown Section 5 onto. The, the lower court, the Ninth Circuit in Brnovich, approved what's called the results test. 
That requires plaintiffs to prove that the law results in a disparate impact, that, that a racial minority or a language minority of voters are disproportionately burdened by the law. And they also have to link it to historical discrimination in that jurisdiction. But the Supreme Court rejects that test. It says, no, it's not enough to prove discriminatory impact. Now what you have to do is prove something much more. It'll be a lot more difficult for plaintiffs to bring Section 2 cases. And Justice Alito's standard requires plaintiffs to, to prove that these new laws create an undue burden on voting. And given the language that he uses, I, I think it's tough to envision any law that can't be justified. For instance, a, a state can assert that new laws were animated by concerns about voter fraud, and even without proving voter fraud, those new statutes would pass muster under Alito's standards. So it's a devastating decision for people who think it should be easy for all citizens to vote in our elections. The court specifically said it was not creating a test to govern all Voting Rights Act Section 2 claims about time, place, and manner, but was giving guideposts. Do you think those guideposts are dangerous and that this decision is a predictor of how the court will deal with future challenges to the most recent spate of voter suppression measures, which are even more dangerous to democracy uh, and have been passed on the grounds that there is fraud in the election or what we might otherwise call the big lie. Yeah, you know, there are a couple of things about this that really bother me in her dissent, which I know we're going to talk about in a little bit. Justice Kagan says, you know, Justice Alito is essentially rewriting the statute. These guideposts don't exist in the statute. He's kind of creating requirements that don't exist. Whatever happened to judicial restraint among the conservative justices? Uh, he creates five new guideposts to decide whether certain burdens violate Section 2. And so uh, he said, you know, first, the burden has to be substantial. Really? Where's that in the statute? Um, and then he says, you know, voting takes time for everybody. So mere inconvenience isn't enough. As long as there's, you know, some way that you can vote, uh, even if now you have to go farther and maybe there's not a Dropbox in your county anymore, uh, as long as it's out there, you know, it's, it's got to be a substantial burden. Well, maybe what is not a substantial burden to someone who has a nine to five job and a wife at home taking care of their kids can get to the uh, the polls uh, quite easily without a substantial burden. But somebody who's working two jobs and wants to vote in advance and do other things may find that burden to be substantial. So um, he wrote that one in. He's also, uh, one of his other guideposts is uh, the degree to which a challenged rule has a long pedigree or is in widespread use in the United States. There's a lot of things that have widespread pedigree. How about, uh, tell me how many bubbles are on the bar of soap. That's That's been around, right. that was around for a long time. Is that yeah, one still? How many jelly beans it Really, just jar. because it's yeah, just because it's been used before, does that mean that that one's okay? Especially, it, I think, fails to recognize evolving technology and the way we relied much more heavily on uh, absentee voting, voting, voting by mail, early voting during the pandemic. And because of technological advances, we, we might want to take advantage of in the future. Um, the disparities of a rule's impact on members of racial or ethnic group is an important factor. Uh, and that, you know, that one seems valid along the lines of what Section 2 um, considers. Fourth, the courts must consider all the ways voters can cast ballots. So, uh, as long as you could show up on election day and cast your ballot in person, then taking away vote by mail, early voting, drop boxes, all these other things are not going to be an impediment because you can still vote. What's the big deal? 
Um, and fifth, the court's reason for the restriction, and certainly that is valid. You know, it, when uh, governments have good policy reasons to do things, it's not for the courts to second guess those policy reasons as long as they otherwise comply with the law. Um, but the one that he thought was valid here is the prevention of fraud. And yes, of course, we should make sure that our vote, our elections have integrity, but it seems like he's buying into the big lie that there is this widespread voter fraud that's going on. And so um, everything about this five-part test, I think, is is manufactured, is not part of the law that Congress passed, and is going to make it much harder uh, to enforce the Voting Rights Act to protect all of this mischief that's going on. And mischief is really a terrible word to use there because it suggests that it's playful and harmless. Um, the real damage that is being done to the ability to vote in this country, um, and it is a coordinated effort, and this opinion is not going to protect voters from those efforts. Very well said, Barb. And um, I, I want to go to you, Kim, and say you wrote a very powerful piece in the Boston Globe quoting Frederick Douglass about the 4th of July. Um, and I, I could feel your personal passion in that article, uh, which will be in our show notes along with Joyce's piece that I mentioned. Um, it seems even more powerful after reading the majority opinion that some disparate impact is okay they said, and they accused the dissenters of transferring power to the federal courts instead of the states where they said it belonged and sort of disallowing a guarantee of equal opportunity to vote. Um, so what's left of the 1965 Voting Rights Act and its amendments after Shelby and well, Burnham? in terms of the ability to enforce it, very little is, is what's left to be, uh, to be frank. And, and I can pretty quickly settle this idea about uh, transferring the power from the states to uh, the federal courts. The federal court, the job of the federal courts is to interpret and enforce federal statutes. The Voting Rights Act is a federal statute, the enforcement of which what is the job of federal courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court. So that is, if you can say to Samuel Alito, you had one job. You had one job today, and that was precisely it. Um, so, so that is nonsense. Yes, it was not. Listen, this this opinion, having listened to oral arguments, having heard um, some of the justices put forth, well, what about fraud? Isn't fraud? Isn't there a strong state interest in preventing fraud? And and really parroting a lot of the GOP talking points when it came to pushing through these restrictive voting laws, hundreds of them from coast to coast, after, after, in 2020, having the record turnout in the middle of a pandemic, after voting restrictions were eased with zero evidence of widespread fraud. Absolutely none. We should be standing up and applauding all of our election officials in states and localities from one end of the coast to the other and Alaska and Hawaii. But instead, it's like, oh, well, now people are, you know, afraid based on what they've been they've heard that there's uh, th that there's fraud. And we have to ease voters minds and let them know that it is safe. All they have to do to do that is say, look what happened in 2020. It went off. It was great. Republicans and Democrats said that it was carried out great. Still, the Supreme Court and, and specifically uh, Samuel Alito, in this opinion, 
basically said, in, in my opinion, reading this, that the state interest, the strong state interest in preventing fraud, even where not a scintilla of evidence of fraud has been shown on the record, is strong enough to support uh, sustaining a challenge to any of these voting laws. And let's not not just these ones in Arizona, all the others, some that other courts have found, like voter ID laws, courts have found to target black voters w- with almost surgical precision. As long as you can say, well, we're trying to prevent fraud, it's basically going to be okay. Like that's where this leads us. It gives, in my opinion, is what I wrote in my column, constitutional cover of the big lie. And that's really, really um it's just devastating and and just shocking to see, even if I was expecting it, which I was. And do you think, Kim, that this decision will encourage passage of For the People and John Lewis because it is a clear showing of the potential for restrictive laws being upheld and for disparate impact on minorities being upheld. Only Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema and other senators who I'm told, nameless senators who also agree with him on the Democratic side, willing. It will take elimination of the filibuster. That's the only thing that can do. But that's what's necessary. The stakes could not be high. So now we have, not only do we have evidence of all these laws being passed, we have evidence from the Supreme Court saying, nope, nothing that you could do with this Voting Rights Act to stop it. So if that is not enough to convince people of people in Washington, of the urgency of passing these laws, I'm not sure what else will. So I'm going to say no, just because so far nothing else has convinced them. Maybe this will be the thing that changes their minds. I hope so. But I don't have a lot of faith in that. I'm always the Pollyanna in this uh, (laughs) group. And so I'm going to remain hopeful that this will be the thing that makes people go, my God, we really have to pass these other laws because we aren't protecting the right to vote. And I hope that our listeners will make sure that they contact their representatives and say, vote for these laws. It's essential. Jill, are you still using HelloFresh every week? I am definitely still using HelloFresh. And even though it's now safe to go back to the grocery store, who wants to when you can get your meal in a package with really fresh produce, terrific quality chicken and meat and fish, fabulous recipes that are easy to follow. I'm going to keep on doing it even though COVID isn't making me stay at home anymore. What about you? Yeah, I, I've become a, a real devoted user of it. Um, and I, I've been using the, the pescatarian option on the menu. You know, you can choose all those different choices. There's one with meats and one that's good for kids and a vegetarian. And I like the, the pescatarian because it has a lot of fish options. And I'm, I'm trying to eat more fish because that's good for me, right? And I agree with you that the quality of uh, the fish is is really outstanding. Uh, you know, HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items each week, including ready-to-eat salads, sandwiches, and soups, all created and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure taste and simplicity. It's super convenient. With HelloFresh, you have the flexibility you need to easily customize your order on the app within minutes. 
They have something for everyone, including the pescatarian and a calorie-conscious menu, as well as the full meat menu. you convincing me I should switch to pescatarian. And HelloFresh is 28% cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store and 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal without sacrificing the quality. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Sisters14 and use code Sisters14 for up to 14 free meals, plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Sisters14. That's Sisters14. And use that same code, Sisters14, for up to 14 free meals, plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Look for the link in our show notes. Well, Kim, I'm still stuck on your incredibly appropriate characterization of the opinion as constitutional cover for the big lie, which is both incredibly depressing and incredibly appropriate. And I think, you know, that's a great lead in for our conversation about the dissent. Something I noticed as we discussed it amongst ourselves is that we may have to rename the podcast The Secret Society for the Appreciation of Justice Elena Kagan's Writing, because something that we're all agreed upon is that, that the dissent, re- I mean, she really picks up the pen that Ruth Bader Ginsburg put down and, and writes with eloquence. But why don't you open our conversation? I think that's absolutely true. So let's dive into this blistering ascent, blistering descent from Justice Elena Kagan. And I encourage all of our listeners to read this dissent, even if you don't read the opinion. Read the (laughs) dissent because it's not written in legalese. It's not hard to understand. And I think it is a great way to fully appreciate exactly what is at stake right now. Um, So Jill... Kagan began her dissent by calling the Voting Rights Act a representation of the best and the worst of America and set out the historical context of when the VRA was passed. Now, Alito, in his opinion, sort of swatted that away like a, you know, annoying fly. But why do you think that historical framing was so important here? First of all, I agree with you that her opinion is just genius Um, I I actually, in taking notes for today, ended up with cutting out, I I printed the opinion, and I actually had to just sort of, I'm going to show everyone on (laughs) you here, but I put in my notebook actual language from her decision because it's just so compelling. And for those who read the majority opinion first, you may go, oh, well, okay, that doesn't sound so awful. Hold on, read the dissent, and you will see everything that is absolutely horrible. And I think what she's referring to, and as someone who graduated law school just after the Civil Rights Act passed, um, I, I grew up in a time when the latent discrimination was ongoing. I mean, remember Civil Rights Act, I'm sorry, the Voting Rights Act um, was passed almost 100 years after the Civil War ended And it was necessary because minorities were still being denied the right to vote. And you can't ignore that history. And I think her point was, let's pay attention to what happened then and that we're getting back to it with all of these new pending 
laws or some that have been passed in many states already um, that are being challenged. So it's it's really important to put it in that context, and she did it very, very well. And she actually used a lot of statistics um, that I thought were very compelling. There was even a graph in, in the opinion, which is something you don't normally see, that showed how many people were denied the right. And, and she talks about, okay, well, maybe it was only 5% of white people who uh, had a problem and it was 1% of uh, minority people, but that's 100% more. And that puts it in a different context. So I think everybody needs to really pay attention to that and needs to see why we need a new law and worry about whether this Supreme Court will find unconstitutional any law that does actually take care of the problem. And Joyce, the the thrust of uh, Justice Kagan's argument is that the court is rewriting the statute, rewriting the Voting Rights Act in a way only Congress has the authority to do. She said that Justice Alito's opinion ignored the fact that the law prohibits the abridgment, not just the denial of voting rights. Uh, and then uh Justice Alito's opinion lists a series of what she calls, quote, made up factors that just about any restrictive voting law could meet uh, to survive a challenge. She says, quote, the majority's opinion mostly inhabits a law free zone. Help us understand what she means here. Well, of course, she's right about all of this. Section two prohibits more than an outright denial of your right to vote, it prohibits the abridgment of it. Something that would tend to make it more difficult to vote can violate Section 2. And of course, the majority just throws that view away. And Justice Kagan calls the majority's view law-free because really what it does is something that would be contrary to what you would expect from a, a majority of textualists. It just ignores the statute and precedent that discusses how Section 2 should be applied. Um, In Justice Kagan's view, any number of these factors that are made up, and she's correct when she says that, will let a state do whatever it wants to do, as Barb explained, using fraud as a justification, even in the absence of evidence of fraud. And the majority opinion here, ultimately, it's only right because Justice Alito was able to muster the six votes that he needed to get a majority. But I'll tell you what, Kim. I'm going to let Justice Kagan really explain the answer to your question because she does it far more eloquently than I can. And Jill is so right that everybody should read this dissent. It's a master class in the history of voting discrimination in America. But here's how she speaks to your question at the very end of the dissent. She says, this court has no right to remake Section 2. Maybe some think that vote suppression is a relic of history. And so the need for a potent Section 2 has come and gone, she cites the Shelby County case. But Congress gets to make that call. Because it has not done so, this court's duty is to apply the law as it is written. The law that confronted one of this country's most enduring wrongs pledged to give every American of every race an equal chance to participate in our democracy and now stands as the crucial tool to achieve that goal. 
That law of all laws deserves the sweep and power Congress gave it. That law of all laws should not be diminished by this court. All right. Well, Barb, we talked before about the fact that Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, has really prioritized voting rights as part of the Department of Justice uh, enforcement actions. So what does this mean for the DOJ's efforts to mount a muscular challenge to these voting laws? Yeah, it's definitely bad news. In fact, Merrick Garland issued a statement urging Congress to pass statutes that would make lawsuits unnecessary, right, which, which can only occur after some harm has occurred. Um, but um, I, I think that um, Justice Kagan's dissent does talk about um, that concept that disparate impact claims are all but impossible to prove now. And I I share Joyce's fangirl uh, approach to Justice Kagan. I think she's a tremendous writer. In fact, I uh, I urge students, if you're a law student or a lawyer, to read her opinions because she is such a good legal writer. Um, she writes not with big flowery words uh, the way many lawyers do. She's not trying to impress people. She's writing to be understood, which is why people should write, to make sure you're communicating clearly. And she's got a passage. Joyce, I know, read a passage, but the passage I like is really right at the very beginning. She says, if a single statute represents the best of America, it's the Voting Rights Act. It marries two great ideals, democracy and racial equality. And then she describes Section 2 and says, if a single statute reminds us of the worst of America, it is the Voting Rights Act, because it was and remains so necessary. And and, and those words, I think, um, the, the tragedy, I guess, is that we still need the Voting Rights Act, and now we don't have it anymore. You may recall that in um, writing in the Shelby County case in 2013, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, wrote her very famous dissent about Section 5 when the Supreme Court eliminated that, the preclearance requirement. And she said, uh, words to the effect of, you don't throw away your umbrella in the rain just because you're not getting wet. Uh, So we lost Section 5, and now we're essentially losing Section 2, at least in part. Um, I I think, Kim, you'd asked what's left. You know, I think that the idea of Um, bringing a lawsuit that has a disparate impact on racial minorities, which had previously been permitted, is going to be very, very difficult to bring going forward because of those five factors that Justice Alito has inserted. If you have to show that there's no other way you can vote, there's always some other way you can vote, even though it it may hit harder on certain segments of the electorate, um, that disparate impact, I think, is not going to be enough because you're not going to be able to show that there aren't these alternatives to voting. So I think what you're going to have to show going forward is intentional uh, discrimination. Now, that's what has been alleged in this lawsuit filed last week by the Justice Department in uh, Georgia, that it's intentional discrimination, that the legislators knew it would have this effect on racial minorities, and yet they went ahead and enacted it anyway. So you're going to have to make sure that there is evidence of that in the record and to prove that, I think, to have a sustainable case. But, you know, just a word about disparate impact and intentional discrimination. I think this goes to the very heart of the debate we're currently having about racism in America. I think I hear so often white people I know say, I'm not racist. I don't discriminate against anybody. I don't have a racist bone in my body. 
And I think what they're missing is the bigger picture about the systems that have that disparate impact on racial minorities. Um, but yet you, you grow up in a system that has opened doors for you, that has um, made it easy for you to obtain loans and go to college and do all of these other things that other people who are racial minorities don't have. And I think that if there's one message I could share with um, uh well-intentioned but misguided uh, white people, it is that it's not about you. If you, you are good for you that you don't discriminate against people and you don't have a racist bone in your body, that's an excellent start. But the next thing we have to do is to dismantle these racist systems that have built up throughout the history of America to ensure that everybody gets the same break and the same opportunities. It's that disparate impact. And the same thing happens. And I think Justice Alito is blind to it when he talks about, uh, you know, as long as there's some way for people to vote, then it's not a violation of the Voting Rights Act. Um, We have to look at that disparate impact. That really matters when it comes to racism in America. America, and that's what people are talking about. So um, I, I think this is a uh, has made the job harder for people like Merrick Garland to bring cases, but um, they're going to have to find evidence of intentional discrimination. That is what they have alleged in Georgia, and I think they can prove it in all these other states, right? I mean, the reason that all these statutes are getting passed is to make it harder for racial minorities to vote because it is believed that they vote more frequently for Democrats. Yeah, I just wanted to add to what Barbara said, again, from um, Kagan's dissent and talking about the um, ballot collection that was upheld by this decision as it applies to Native Americans. And she points out that only 18 percent of rural Native Americans in the state have home delivery of mail. The travel times of an hour or more to the nearest post office are common that many members of the community do not have cars. That basically says, well, then you just can't vote by mail. And it seems to me that taking away the right to vote by mail is as important as saying, you can't just substitute saying, well, but you could vote in person. Um, That's not enough. Everybody has the right to vote by mail in the state, and Native Americans don't realistically have that. So I think that's important to it keep really in It really is, mind. and it's a common practice within those tribal communities to have someone gather people's mail and turn it in, just as they would gather people's ballots and turn them in. I, I just want to close this uh, part of the discussion with an anecdote that I've had uh, up, until, up until the beginning of this year. I lived in Virginia, and for the 2008 election, I lived in a a uh, largely blue part of what was then very red Virginia. And I waited almost four hours to vote in the presidential election. And I saw other people who were in the line that stretched down the block have to leave that line because they had to go to work. And those people tended to be black and brown. I was lucky enough, even though I was covering the Supreme Court as a reporter and had to get there that day. Um, that I was able to stay in line and cast my vote. Then in 2012, I voted early, still had to wait 90 minutes because it was kind of a purple state then. Uh, In 2020, it took 30 seconds because all I had to do was take my mail-in ballot and drop it in a drop box. This makes a difference. To see that with my own eyes gave me even greater perspective, even though I already knew that it took not one but two constitutional amendments to guarantee the right for me to vote in this country.
As always, we've received some great listener questions this week. If you have questions for us, please email us at sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet using the hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds during the week. We'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can get to. So to start our questions this week, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that this week Merrick Garland has declared a moratorium on further use of the death penalty. But while the death penalty itself is no longer being used, a number of our readers were interested in learning about whether there was inconsistency since DOJ continues to pursue the death penalty in cases like uh, the man who committed the murders at Mother Emanuel Church, Dylan Roof, or in the case of the Boston Marathon. And of course, prosecutors can continue to seek permission to pursue the death penalty. So what do we think about Merrick Garland's death penalty moratorium? Well, I think that it essentially puts us back um, where we were in the Obama administration. And keep in mind, the Boston Marathon bombing trial um, took place during the Obama administration. The death penalty was sought and the jury in even Massachusetts, where the death penalty is very unpopular, there is no state death penalty, um, chose to give that. But at the time, it was almost understood that that wouldn't happen um, at least not in, during the Obama administration, because there had been a halt of the death penalty for a number of uh, reasons, in, including the um, reevaluation of whether the methods that were used violated the Eighth Amendment. So we're sort of put back there. It, it seems like it's inconsistent, but it's not necessarily so. Um, and, and that's what seems to be happening here. I think it actually goes back further than just the Obama administration because there had not been a federal execution for what is it, seventeen to twenty yeah, years before the Trump uh, in this country and, until Trump right. not only restarted them but went after it with a vengeance. And given the public pronouncements of President Biden, this seems like a logical step to say that there will be no further ones and that there will be a study of the. Uh, the punishment that goes with it and the pain uh, with the lethal injections that have had some problems. So I think it was a good decision. I should say that that moratorium had begun in the Bush administration because there had been challenges to the, the drugs that were used for lethal injection that had been, as you said, um, caused pain and discomfort uh, in really horrific situations in some of those executions. I was just going to say, I, I don't know that it's inconsistent. You know, it's not really the role of the Justice Department to say um, we're not going to enforce the death penalty. If it's on the books by Congress, um, I, I think they can exercise discretion and say that um, we uh, think it's not appropriate in this case. But, you know, if you can imagine the worst case scenario, Shokar Zarnayev or Dylan Roof or one of those, um, you you have to um apply the law based on those you know those aggravating and mitigating factors that exist in the statute and there are certain situations where it's it's going to apply it really is on congress i think to change the law but uh, the attorney general i think can say we're going to study it further before we continue executions it is the job of the executive branch to execute the law and uh the, in that memo he talked about the various things that they're going to study um about exonerations that have occurred after um sentences have been imposed and um the uh the 
humane, inhumane aspects of the particular method of uh, using particular drugs for the death penalty. So all of those are fair game. So it seems to me that the Justice Department is doing all it can to make progress in this area, um, but still leaving to Congress, it's, you know, under the uh, notion of separation of powers, the authority to decide whether we should abolish the death penalty in the United States. I think that's right, Barb. And given the fact that the attorney general invokes the racial disparity in the way the death penalty is administered and imposed in this case, it would be well within President Biden's lane for him to decide that prosecutors could no longer seek the death penalty and even to commute sentences. But the the real burden in this case is on Congress to act. So moving on to our second question, at Sally CJ2 asks, what's the difference between an indictment, an arraignment, and an arrest? Well, I'll take this one. It's a a vocabulary quiz. So an indictment is an official charging document. That is what the grand jury returns uh, listing the charges. So this week we saw the Trump Organization, for example, be uh, charged in an indictment. That's the document that lists out uh, and puts the defendant on notice of the crime with which he is charged. An arraignment is the court hearing where the defendant appears and is uh, receives a copy of the indictment, has the option of having it read in open court. Most defendants waive that opportunity, and they um, make their official initial plea. Sometimes they can change that plea, but they'll either plead not guilty at that time, usually. Um, sometimes they'll they'll stand mute, which means I'm not going to say anything at this time because I might change my mind. So the arraignment is that hearing before a judge. And an arrest is the moment when someone takes you into custody. So if you've committed a crime and you've been charged, then uh, the police or a federal agent will come and put you in handcuffs and take you in for processing. They might keep you in custody if you are not entitled to uh, bail or bond, or you may be released on bail pending charges. So the physical... uh, uh, seizing of your body and taking you into custody is the arrest. Oh, I got it right. I'm a civil attorney and I got it right. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let, let's credit. just add two things to that, which is there is not always an arrest. So a defendant can turn themselves in and not be arrested, as happened with Weisselberg, who just came with his lawyers directly to the courthouse. Um, and there's also something called an information, although the question didn't ask for it. And that is something that doesn't necessarily require a grand jury, and many jurisdictions allow some cases to be charged by information. So that was a great answer. I feel like that was the first semester of criminal law um, during the first (laughs) year of law school, done in in two minutes. Um, Our last question comes from Mons in Orlando, Florida, and it's a great question. How did y'all learn how to allay any speaking fears you may have had and command attention in a room? And I'm embarrassed to admit I can't answer this one for my students yet, but what's the best path for someone to become a lawyer? Undergrad English Lit so they learn to write? Criminal justice? Political science? What do you say, sisters? All right, I will take this. First of all, I knew I was going to be a lawyer. I saw undergrad as just four years that I had to, you know, find something to do until I went to law school. And I decided not to do poli sci or history or any of the other things that are supposed to be quote unquote pre-law. First of all, there's really no pre-law curriculum. You can really do what you want. And I chose journalism because I started working for my um, school newspaper and loved it. But to say this, initially, when I went to my guidance counselor, 
and asked, you know, about journalism, if that could be a pre-law curriculum. And she's, she basically told me, yes, anything can be a pre-law curriculum. And I said I was interested in, in working for the school's um, radio station and doing broadcast. And she said, uh, why don't you write for the newspaper? Because, you know, you have a lisp and I'm not sure you can make it in broadcast. And I said, I have a what? Um, I did not realize that I had this thing, but I believed in myself. I had a very strong belief in myself. So I did go work. Um, I did go write for my school's newspaper and ended up loving it. And it's what started my newspaper career after I decided to stop practicing law many years later. But at the same time, I went, I got a speech therapist. One of my professors who did speech therapy, I went to her and I was determined to get rid of that lisp. I also got rid of my um, Michigan accent. Star, sorry, Barb. I, she suggested that I might want to do that too. Michigan accent? <laughs> How don't you Michigan accent anymore? It's not as bad as Going Chicago. to the basketball game. Um, and... <laughs> You know, it was just the belief in oneself that they could do whatever they want. So now, having worked at NPR, currently a guest host on NPR and MSNBC contributor, I proved that guidance counselor wrong. So believe in yourself. You can speak in public if you believe that you can and, and seek out whatever um, resources you have available to you, just as I did, to help you gain that confidence if you don't have it. But that's 90% of it, I think, is having the confidence to be able to do it. I agree with Kim, but I would say there are ways to learn. Uh, first of all, you have to just do it. That's one of the things. But you can take classes in public speaking and I took one once where I learned to have the typed document in front of me in bigger print so that it was easy to read and mostly white margins so I didn't feel I had to speak quickly. When you see a big lot of words on the page, you speak too fast. And then sometimes I put like an emoji to make me remember to look at the audience and smile and it works. It really does. So you can learn in addition to just having the confidence that that you're intended to And I will to say have. that the, the speech therapist I went to was my public speaking professor in college. So that's absolutely right. She gave me, certainly gave me clips and uh, tips and clues um, and cues to use to help me. I'm not... I'm not showing right now that I'm a good public speaker, but I really. <laughs> <laughs> but we all know you are. She gave me what I needed. So I agree with everything Jill just said. <laughs> One thing I would add is that um, I have not overcome all fears of public speaking. And I, I think that that's okay. I, um, uh, I, I use it as um, to my advantage, I think. You know, it's like. Um, uh, anytime you're going to do something that's important, if you have a little bit of butterflies, um, you can harness that as positive energy. And so, um, the, as Jill said, the more you do it, the more comfortable you become and you develop your own techniques for what works best for you. Um, so just doing it, repetition helps. But I still get a little bit nervous. And, I, and it's, I guess, learning to be comfortable with the discomfort is uh, is what I have done. And uh, so I would say to students, if if you're uncomfortable, it's okay. Um, just realize that that's part of the deal and, you know, it, it just ride it out. <laughs> It'll be okay. Well, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Joyce Vance. 
Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. And please support this week's sponsors, Fast Growing Trees and HelloFresh. You can find their links in the show notes. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sisters in law. By the way, did I tell y'all I'm officially Kimberly Atkins store, the Social Security Administration? Nice. That Yay. was fast. How did it you get them so to move that much fast? Faster than I thought. Like you have to so you have to go to the office and drop your documents in a Dropbox so you know you don't hmm. come into contact with anybody. And so I thought pandemic measures pandemic times it would take forever 48 hours not only don't let justice alito get a hold of the drop box <laughs> of the social security <laughs> get rid of that in a heartbeat <laughs> oh my god <laughs>